Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping you lead better every day. And now here's your host. Hello, friends, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Church Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Day, and I had a great time sitting down this week with Jeff Vanderstelt. Jeff is the executive director and founder of Saturate, which focuses on gospel saturation by training disciples of Jesus to make more disciples of Jesus. He is also the lead visionary of the Soma family of churches and is the vision and teaching pastor of Doxa Church in Bellevue, Washington. On this week's episode, Jeff and I have some great conversations around what the gospel truly is and how we as Christ followers and as ministers can help make disciples who in turn make disciples. Jeff talks about some very practical steps that we can take as pastors to help our churches become more focused and more intentional on the idea of community and disciple making. So I encourage you to join us as we jump into our discussion with Jeff Vanderstelt. Jeff, welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Now, Jeff, you write, preach, teach, and talk a lot about the gospel. And in recent years, there have been many well-known pastors, theologians, biblical scholars that have addressed the question, what exactly is the gospel? So to frame our conversation today, can you help us understand what you mean when you talk about the gospel? What is the gospel? Well, I think I'd start with Romans 1.16. It's the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Um, so it's, I mean, that's the simple phrase of it, but it's, it's really found, believe what? Believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the life of Jesus for our righteousness, the one who lived perfectly submitted to God the Father on our behalf as a human who did what we don't, uh, who went to the cross as a substitutionary atonement to die for our sins and to take on our sin and then in exchange grant us by faith in Christ his righteousness and then rose again on the third day to overcome Satan, sin, and death to enable us to live a new life by the same power of the Spirit that raised him from the dead. So that would be my the power of God for salvation to all who believe, who believe what? Believe in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for their justification, their sanctification, and ultimately their glorification. Excellent. Now, when you survey the church world, um, and we have listeners all over the world, but but many of our listeners are here in North America. So um, let's just focus on the church world across North America. Jeff, where do you see we are kind of missing it when it comes to the gospel? Well, and I, I guess I would probably want to add one more thing before I answer that. Um, I want to make sure I also say it's not so when we talk about the power of God for salvation, and this is a, what, another way of answering what you're asking, it's not just for personal salvation. It's holistically that God has come to rescue and renew all of creation through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So I think that's one of the ways we're missing it, is we make it a very individualistic application, primarily to my own, either my own justification and ultimate glorification in the future, you know, I'm going to be with God forever. And then we leave out sanctification, which is uh, that the gospel is actually saving us, that through the power of God, we're being saved on a daily basis to become a people for God's purposes and glory in the world every day. 
And then we often, because we over-individualize it and we only connect it to legal standing before God or future salvation from hell, we miss out on the fact that God is at work saving us every day and working through us uh, because of the gospel to make all of life come under the authority of Christ and exist for the glory of Christ. And so I think we've really missed on how much it actually impacts all of life. Excellent. I'm, I'm so glad that you... you um dove into that because uh, truly I, I think you know we're in a culture that we love to customize stuff personalize stuff and so we've kind of done that with the gospel you know we've made it such on an individualized level so let me ask you this jeff how can pastors and ministry leaders help move our people beyond this gospel just for me and understand the fuller aspect of the gospel first of all they're going to have to learn how to if they're pastors and they get to preach the word regularly, they're going to have to learn how to teach and preach every text in the Bible uh, as good news. And what I mean by that is uh, ultimately creating the longing for Jesus, pointing us to the fulfillment in Jesus, and showing us what life together would look like because of Jesus. And so a lot of times I hear pastors preach, and I've been guilty of this myself, and I primarily want to exegete the text, and then, you know, give a good exposition and in my preaching. And if I'm not careful, I want to just apply it to personal application to the individual listener and, and lose, one, the beauty of the gospel in the text or how it points me to the gospel. And then, two, uh, the fact that all of Scripture was written to form a people for God's purposes um, in the earth, not primarily for my personal application and my own personal like satisfaction. So I think they've got to learn how to not only teach every text with the gospel in mind and lead it, leading people to Christ, but then show that the outcome was always that God through Christ was creating a people for himself on the earth who would live in such a way that the world would know what God's like by watching his people, the church, love one another, serve one another, and share Jesus in community together. So I think the goal of our preaching has to change. Um, And so that's one thing I think they need to do. I think second, they need to actually lead their churches in such a way that you could no longer consider yourself being a disciple of Jesus if you're living in isolation and not in community working the gospel out in everyday life. That that that's just a foreign concept to any author of the text of scripture. None of them would have ever looked at what we're doing today in this radically individualized application of the text and affirmed it in any way. I mean, just every text of the Bible is written to a people or in the pastoral epistles written to lead pastors and how to lead a people to be God's people collectively. So I think that'd be the second thing. The third thing is I think you need to really ask yourself, what are our programs, what are our events uh, informing people about? Is, are we telling them primarily uh, this is all about you, and in particular you, singular, not you all, plural? And it, it, are we continuing to cater to a radical consumerism and a radical individualism that is so rampant in our culture? And I think we have to really do an audit on everything we're teaching and doing in our programmatic thinking and ask, are we actually just affirming an idolatrous view of man instead of a, a God-centered, Christ-centered view of God's people? Let, let me press in, Jeff, a little bit on, on that last point there. Can you give us some specific examples, maybe, of things that churches might commonly be doing that aren't helping 
are people open their eyes and their hearts to kind of the collective reality of being the people of God? Are there, are there some specific things or maybe some specific things that you've done in your church or, or those that you, you lead have done in their, their churches that kind of help our people move beyond this individualized view of, of Jesus and me? Yeah, I, I, well, I think it, it, it happens in a variety of ways. I think, one, it can happen when you have a church led by a singular pastor, kind of like top-down, one guy at the top of the org chart. When you do that, you're fundamentally telling the church, follow my example, which is I live in an isolated way of leading the church, and so it's no wonder that everybody else follows my example and that we have groups that are then led by one leader. We have ministries that are led by one leader. We don't see team leadership. We don't see plurality of leadership in a lot of churches. And and I think what that does is it just communicates all the way down that this is an individualistic approach because we have leadership that's individualistic and therefore why would we we'd be surprised if we have disciples who are very individualistic. I think that's one. I think second, ask yourself what you platform, what, what stories you tell. If the majority of the conversion uh, stories um, that you have are primarily, uh, you know, someone came to the Sunday gathering and they heard the preacher preach and they came to faith that way, then what you're telling them is you can enter as an individual, you can leave as an individual. In fact, your conversion is largely individualistic. Instead of saying, hey, let's tell the story of the community that got around your life, that built friendships, that invited you into their home, the community that you saw loving one another like Jesus in such a way that it led you to want to be a part of this community. And so conversion wasn't just individualistic, it was conversion into a, a family of faith. Um, and then I think you ask yourself, okay, then how do we establish them in the faith through baptism? Like in our case, the people who were part of leading them to faith get into the water and baptize them. So it's a, we show the community discipling one another versus it's just the pastor that does everything for you. Um, so I think there's a lot of things like that. For us, we try to have shared leadership in all of our groups. So that way it's, there's not just one person at the leading the group. We try to make sure everybody's not just doing one-on-one discipleship, but generally three people together for their discipleship. We call them a DNA group so that it's not just a top, like a mentor to a student, but more, I think, stylistically around what we see Jesus do with his three, Peter, James, and John, and then the 12. He's always discipling in community. He really, never really does discipleship in isolation. It's always in community. So I think you you build your programs that way and ask, are we doing plurality of leadership, plurality of discipleship? Uh, even on the platform, are you sharing the platform with other voices? So they're seeing lots of people, um, young and old, different diversity of races, men and women who are sharing from the stage what God is doing in their life. So I think you there's so many ways to do it, but I think you ask yourself, what are we platforming? What are we celebrating? What are the stories we're telling? And how do our programs lead people together on mission versus pull them in separation on mission? Yeah, that Jeff, that's that's very helpful, and and everything is really you know pointing to this idea of the community of faith and how the community of faith kind of lives out life in that sense of relationship with one another, all the way from you know intentional team leadership down to discipling in community in these smaller groups. So, what would you say to a pastor who is in a smaller church? who feels like they're carrying the whole burden themselves. You know, they, they, they're wearing lots of different hats and um, loves the idea of, of ministering in community, but is wrestling with how do I make that happen in kind of in the context I find myself in? What encouragement would you have for them? 
I would encourage them to look at their week and ask themselves, how much time are they putting into doing ministry and how much time are they putting into equipping ministers? And I mean people that are unpaid in their church and really embrace the Ephesians 4 call to equip the saints for the work of ministry and ask themselves, how many things am I doing that if I put time into training people, they might be able to do? So for instance, I meet when I meet with pastors of smaller churches, I find that many of them are carrying the counseling load. They're, they're doing visitations. And, it, and I think there's this sense of like, you know, whether you read Baxter on, on what it means to be a pastor or somebody else, that the pastor's got to carry this whole weight. And uh, I just think that's unbiblical. And so I think think what you have to ask yourself is, if I were to put some time into a few for a season, uh, what kinds of things would I train them to do that would allow me to share leadership with more people in my church um, and, and actually redistribute a lot of my energies away from doing all the ministry for the people to equipping the people for the ministry? That's so helpful. Excellent. So equipping ministers, focusing in on how we equip people to minister and uh, share kind of um, the leadership there in ministry or local church. Um, yeah, and to, to give an example of sure. that, what when I was in a smaller church setting, I made it a point, as much as I possibly could, to bring someone I was training along with me to a place where I was going to do ministry. So if I was going to do a counseling, I would ask you know the couple or the single person that I was going to counsel, would you mind if this person I'm training were to sit in and learn with me and share in this process? Or when when I was going to help a family figure out their financial budget and because they were struggling with that, I'd say I'd bring a, a fellow leader along and say, let's I'm going to teach you how to do this with somebody. So every time I would engage in, in a pastoral call or an opportunity to minister to somebody, I would try to bring someone I was training along with me so they would learn how to do it. And eventually I told them the next time we do this, um, I'm going to have you do it, and I'm just going to watch you, and then give you feedback afterwards. And so, and that's that's nothing new, right? It's just discipleship. But but I think a lot of times pastors are doing a lot of those ministry visits or works all by themselves, and they're not inviting anybody into it to learn with them. That's so good, and I, I think that that just is like you're saying, it's modeling that idea of um, team ministry and the community. You know that we're we're not just in this on our own. That there's a sense of community. Excellent right. stuff. So, Jeff, I want to kind of switch gears a little bit. In your newest book, Gospel Fluency, um, you write a lot about, and you kind of kick it off with this idea of the struggle of unbelief. You know, and this idea of unbelief seems to play a central role in becoming a devoted follower of Christ and making disciples. Can you talk to us um, a bit about this struggle of unbelief? Yeah, I think it's important to start where. Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit being given to us, and in John 16, 9, he says that the Spirit will convict us of sin in regards to unbelief, and then he says, and unbelief in me, he speaks about himself. And so it's this idea that the sin in our life or the lack of the fruit of the Spirit in our life is always connected to our beliefs, that every behavior, every activity of our life is always rooted in a belief center. Uh, things that we believe about God, what we believe about what he's done, things we believe about ourselves in light of what he's done. And then that always produces the fruit of our life. I, the language I use is that we've got to trace fruit to root, that we got to look at the fruits of our life, the behaviors and the kind of the spiritual fruits and ask, what are, what are they telling us about what we believe about who God is, what he's done and who we are in Christ? So, the reality is every single Christian and non-Christian 
is loaded with unbelief. In other words, they hear something they, the, the, about God or what he's done, but they, they don't really believe it as evidenced by their behavior. Or wrong belief, uh, meaning they've got a perverted or distorted view of God, like Paul talks about in Romans 1. Or they're just ignorant, uh, which Paul says, you know, when he when he goes to preach, God put up with your ignorance for some time, but now you're not ignorant anymore because I've now told you about what God's like. And so paying attention to our unbelief, our wrong beliefs, or our ignorance is a key, I think, to really discerning why we do the things we do. And every single behavior of our life is connected to the belief system in our heart. And so for me, as I wrote the book, I realized if we don't, if I don't help everybody understand that in some way or another, they are all unbelievers, meaning there's still truths about God and what he's done that they still don't believe, as evidenced by the fact that they're still not like Christ. And the more they submit themselves to the truths of God in Christ Jesus, the more they become like Jesus in their thoughts, in their motives, and in their behaviors. And this is exactly how kind of this idea of unbelief relates to our sanctification. As, as you kind of mentioned earlier, um, the, the whole idea is that Jesus um, seeks to rescue us from our unbelief. And as we become more Christ-like through this sanctification is how we overcome those different areas of unbelief in our lives. Yeah. So for instance, if uh, you were to hang out with me and go, Jeff, you know, you're you're really impatient with your wife. I, I don't know if that's true, but let's just use that as an example. <laughs> and you're you're and you were in community with me, and you're sitting down and say, Jeff, I want to I want to ask you right now, what what are you believing about who God is, what He's done, and who you are? Because what I'm seeing in your life is not the fruit of the Spirit, which is patience and all the other parts of the the fruit. Uh, I'm seeing impatience. So in this moment, what are you believing about yourself? about what God's done and who he is. And I kind of reverse that process. Uh, so you say, Jeff, you're impatient with your wife. Right now, what are you believing? Well, maybe what I'm believing right now is, you know, life is all about me. Why are not? Why isn't everybody doing what I want? And then if I back that up to the next question, what does that tell me about what I believe God's done? Well, I believe that God may be, uh, I mean, this may not be true, but if I process that a lot of them, I go, God, God really made the world all about me. Like when God created everything, he said, Jeff, you're the center. Everyone should exist for your purpose. And what does that tell me about who God is? Really, God is me. I really think I'm God. Uh, that's the reality. But if then I look at the gospel, I realize, okay, wait a minute, Jesus came as God in flesh, said, yes, I have every right to have it all be about me, but I'm going to lay down my life for you. And because Jesus laid down his life for me and was patient with me, and God's continued to be patient with me, and wants me to actually have life as it's meant to be, which is revolving around him, the most patient one of them all, then I can realize not only do am I forgiven for my lack of patience, but I have one who's fully patient for me, so that even in my impatience toward my wife, I have one who will never give up on me. And the more that I see that and believe that, and the more that I realize making it all about me is the worst way of living because it doesn't lead to the fruit of the Spirit, the more I'm led to Jesus as the one who is patient for me, forgives me of my impatience, and can help me to actually become the kind of man that a true human should be like, which is a man that's God-centered and therefore others uh, focused in his service. So that kind of process, someone if someone can help me see, Jeff, at the heart of your impatience is complete unbelief in the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. And I can apply that to anything. You know, Why right. am I unloving to my neighbors? Well, because fundamentally, maybe I think 
I should only love those who love me back. But if, if I see the gospel, I realize, no, God loved me while I was an enemy. And therefore, because I have one who loved me when I was an enemy, I can love my enemies. I can love my neighbors because Jesus loved me as a neighbor, even though I was a rebellious one. Um, I can love those who take advantage of me because even though I take advantage of Christ, he never kind of gives up on me. His grace is abundant for all of the ways in which I don't fully appreciate him. And so I I keep thinking back, where does the gospel confront and change this view of life? And how then in Christ might I not only be forgiven, but transformed by the renewing of my mind to live a new life? I love that that process, Jeff, because— you know, I'm thinking, you know, as you start out, you say, like, let's say you and I were sitting down and, and talking. And, and I, I love thinking through this because when we're in these friendships, you know, uh, discipling relationships, friends that we're doing life together, and this process seems to lend itself to this idea of discovery as opposed to I'm looking into your life and I'm telling you where you're wrong and what is right, this process seems to be like, let's walk through this and discover why might I be feeling this particular way? Why is this behavior being exhibited in my life? So it seems to be a lot, I don't know how to say it, maybe a lot more real <laughs> where it comes mm. to just kind of living life as opposed to something that's you know placed on top of our life, our behaviors, our attitudes is something that comes out of you know, so this discovery process. Uh, does that lend itself to this whole idea of disciple-making and, and kind of doing life together and, and being on this journey? Yeah, and in, in saying that, I think what you just tapped on is something that's really important to recognize. Unfortunately, most of our thinking about discipleship, about teaching, whatever it may be that we do uh, to form people into Christ-likeness, most of it, unfortunately, has taken on this idea of I'm the master teacher, you need to listen to what I have to say, or I, I have the position of being right and you're probably wrong. There's, if we're not careful, there's this potential arrogance that we assume we know what's going on in the heart of another person. We assume we know the exact answer they need to hear. We assume that that we probably are right and, and they probably are wrong. And if you watch the ministry of Christ, <laughs> even though he is perfectly right, he's so curious. He's so inquisitive. Right. He's draw like Proverbs talk about, the, the one who's wise is the one who can draw out the deep waters of the heart. And so whether it's the woman at the well or the rich young ruler or you name it, Jesus is asking questions. He's drawing out the heart. And when the heart gets exposed, then then the person can, can in a sense, see the real problem in them. And they don't always see it because— uh, clearly, they didn't. They didn't every time. But the woman at the well clearly did. And then, and you know, her good news story back to her, back to the people in, in the community was, "Come meet a man who told me everything I, you know I've ever done." Well, how, he didn't necessarily tell her all that. He actually drew it out of her. He, you know, he, she in a sense was speaking out loud her questions and her struggle and her, and he, you know, he did certainly tell her some stuff. But he took some time to ask her questions, to to seek her heart, and of course. He had divine insight into her heart, which I think we can get as well if we slow down and listen. So actually one of the things I do talk about in the book is we actually got to be, we have to become better at listening to people. We have to be better at asking questions. Um, We have to assume we don't know everything. 
And that by asking questions, by being present with people, the spirit will reveal the heart to each other. And in that moment, then the spirit also, who is the ultimate counselor, can bring the truth of God to bear on those hearts that are revealed. Jeff, as you were talking through that sort of discovery process, um, especially there in disciple-making relationships, I couldn't help but think back to when I first began in ministry. And and as I was uh, preparing messages to, to preach and to share with our people, I almost felt like it was my responsibility to give them some answers to take home with them. And I remember uh, the Holy Spirit working on me, and and I came to understand that um, as I was preaching to our people, it wasn't so much me just giving them some answers, but it was me celebrating the beauty of Jesus and the truths of God but inviting them to wrestle with some questions, right? So that when they left, they weren't just came in, they got, you know, their good, uh, you know, Jesus answers and then went off to lunch, but that they came in and they were challenged and they're wrestling with uh, the, the, the beauty and the truths and the hope of Jesus Christ and, and what that means in their lives. And so I see this not only in kind of the smaller disciple-making relationships, but also whenever we're, uh, you know, speaking and preaching to the crowd. Have you seen this discovery process as a part of your preaching as well? Yeah, I think when it comes to preaching, I regularly try to put a couple questions in every one of my messages um, that I just ask for the sake of getting them to, to think and to kind of question themselves to dig deeper in their heart to reveal the motives for why they do certain things without giving an answer you know just like right. you know, like you said you know just letting it letting it sit letting the spirit work in that moment and i, I i've seen that happen plenty of times i do that i do that in preaching but i've seen it happen a t- plenty of times in leadership um, i'm growing in this even more recently and just saying how can i be more inquisitive about someone's behavior like so what, help me understand why why you would you would do that or you know what would be the motive behind that kind of um thinking or behavior and so just the more that i'm i'm inquisitive the more that i actually discover things i i didn't know before and find motives that i i probably would have assumed on somebody that probably were might maybe the motives why i might do something but th- that's not always the same for somebody right. else so and, and then the other thing, as you know, I'm sure from doing being involved in ministry is that when you give someone the opportunity to really open up and share and you, you're genuinely interested in them, uh, people will spill out all kinds of stuff that they've, they've never told anybody. And, and I think if those moments don't happen, you're not really making disciples because unfortunately then most of discipleship is information dump. It's just, I'm going to give you a bunch of things you should know. I don't even know if you believe them, but you sure know how to articulate them back to me because that's what we do really well as we articulate our doctrines, our convictions. We, I don't even know if I'd call them convictions because a lot of times people will say stuff they don't really believe, but they know that's what they're supposed to say. And so unfortunately, we never get to the real heart because we don't make, make space for it and we don't seem to even care about it. We just care about making sure we've got the right answers and we're doing the right behavior. So we, we aim at the head, we aim at the hands, but we miss the heart. Uh, we miss the very center of their being when we're discipling people. 
some people listening might might be saying, you know what, what you're saying, Jeff, that's so true because so much of, of what we do and what we call discipleship in our church is we're just relaying information, uh, like you said, an information dump, right? We're just we're just kind of pushing more truths, more facts, more more stuff on people. But you have uh, created a, a really cool resource um, that seems to kind of help people walk through this this idea of not just a, an information dump, but kind of digging in and um, helping people wrestle with some questions. And that's the Gospel Fluency Handbook, right? Can you talk to us a little bit about what inspired uh, you and Ben Connolly to put together the Gospel Fluency Handbook? And how is this a great resource when it comes to doing exactly what we've been kind of talking about? Well, with the Gospel Fluency book, I wanted to introduce the concept of gospel fluency and how you grow in community to become gospel fluent people. We realized that the we, it would be really helpful to guide people through a process of not only studying and understanding what the concept was, but to actually begin to then apply these principles to one another in community in such a way that you would take the time to draw out the heart. You would take the time to really begin to not only practice gospel fluency, but uh, learn how to draw the hearts out of the heart out of one another so that we could really get to a heart level development. So yeah, we, we developed the handbook with the, the purpose of guiding a group, probably a small group, uh, through that process of really getting after head, uh, heart, and hands in their uh, gospel fluency development. It's a eight-week study, right? And yeah, it's, it, uh-huh. Go ahead. it's eight weeks, and uh, we're finding that some people prefer taking longer because it, it is – some people aren't used to going – to the level that we're going to encourage you to go to. So some people are taking 16 weeks to do it and just slowing down a little bit more because it's so foreign in some ways to many people to even engage in community the way we're going to encourage you to do it. This idea of head, heart, and hands, a holistic approach to encountering Jesus and making disciples seems to be a core characteristic of so many churches around the world. Jeff, can you share with us a bit more about Soma churches. What what is distinctive about the Soma movement? Yeah, I think one of, one of the key distinctions is that um, we see Sunday as one aspect of the Christian's life, and I know lots of pastors would say that, but for us, we we really would say the most effective way to make disciples is not Sunday, and it's not through programs; it's through everyday life. And unfortunately, if you don't make disciples in everyday life, meaning where you live, where you work, where you learn, where you play, the normal stuff of eating and celebrating and just that normal everyday stuff, if you don't make disciples in the everyday stuff of life, what you end up doing is you you make curriculum-based disciples. They know a curriculum. Or you make Sunday-based disciples. They know how to be a Christian on Sunday. Uh, or you make Bible study disciples, meaning that when they're in a Bible study, they really know how to talk about Jesus. They really know how to submit to him. But when they go to work, they don't really know what that looks like. When they're engaged in everyday activities, they don't know how to what that looks like. And therefore, they're generally pretty ineffective as missionaries because they don't know how to lead someone who is in normal everyday life to Jesus through the normal stuff of life. So they have to try to get them to come to a church event or get them to come to a Bible study or get them to come to a program, which only further complicates the problem because now everybody becomes a disciple through Sunday, through a program, through a Bible study. And so now you have a bunch of people who only know how to make disciples in those events. Well, that's very problematic as the world is becoming more and more 
secular, post-Christian, and in many cases anti-Christian, especially anti-church. I mean, what I mean by that is by church events. They're not coming to these events. And where I'm at in Seattle, that's very clear. So then what we do is we sit back and go, like, well, we, nobody knows how to now reach the world. We don't know how to actually make disciples in the world because the only way we know how to do it is through Sunday and programs. So not only is it problematic for mission, it's actually problematic for making disciples who actually look like Jesus because in the majority of our life, we've never been discipled. We've only been discipled in Sunday. We've only been discipled in Bible study. We've only been discipled in in curriculum. And therefore, we don't even look like Jesus in the majority of our life because no one discipled us in everyday life. So the thing that really distinguishes us, and I don't want to say this is like nobody else is doing this. That's not what I mean. But a thing that is very clear distinction of Soma Church is we believe the best place to disciple people, in fact, the Jesus-commanded way to disciple people, is that we've got to disciple people in normal, everyday places, around a meal, at a table, in a living room, at a park, on the soccer field, at work. Like Those are the places we need to train people how to make disciples. And Sunday, then, is a way to, to inform people of that, equip them toward that, send them toward that, encourage them around that. But we realize if they aren't doing it in everyday life, we actually are not effectively making disciples the way Jesus did. So that's a big part of it. Sunday is an aspect of the work, but it's just one day in a week full of disciple-making opportunities. Jeff, it seems you've shared the heartbeat of Soma Churches through the two books you've written, Saturate and most recently, Gospel Fluency. How do these books help ministry leaders and really all Christ followers become more intentional about living in community and making disciples? Well, I think the first book, Saturate, really lays out how to be disciples of Jesus in the everyday stuff of life. And then the second book, Gospel Fluency, was now how do you speak the truths of Jesus into the everyday stuff of life? So in a sense, they were a companion, companion volume of, you know, one is what does life look like if you're going to be in community together making disciples? And then how do we make sure we speak Jesus into all those relationships? Because it's by speaking Jesus into every day stuff that we grow up into Christ. Paul says it in Ephesians 4, 15, speaking the truth in love, which is shorthand for him saying speaking the, the truth about Jesus in love, we will in every way grow up into Christ to his head. And so the way I stated in the book is if we're going to grow up into Christ in every way, we've got to learn how to speak the truths of Jesus into everything. If our listeners want to learn more about your book, Saturate and Gospel Fluency, and then this Gospel Fluency handbook that we discussed, or, you know, SOMA as a whole, where where can they go to learn more, Jeff? Well, I'd encourage you to go to Saturate the World dot com to find out uh, lots of information about how you can get more equipping and training. We have videos and resources. You can even get coaching if you want in how to lead your church in these ways. So that would be how you get more access to the training and the resources that we provide. If you want to learn more about the Soma family of churches, just go to wearesoma.com uh, and you can find out more about us there. Awesome, brother. Thank you so much for taking time to share with our listeners. A lot of great stuff in this episode. Um, Touch on a lot of great things, I think, that, that will challenge us as pastors as we seek to live out the calling that Jesus has given us to uh, go and make disciples. So thank you, Jeff, for all you do for the kingdom, and thank you for spending time with us today on Church Leaders. Thank you very much. 
I appreciate you taking the time to be with us on this week's episode. Every week as we are putting the episodes together, we're thinking of you, our pastors and ministry leaders, and striving to provide insightful and inspiring interviews as you seek to grow as a kingdom leader. So we hope you're finding value from the Church Leaders Podcast. And if so, we'd certainly appreciate you taking a few moments to head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Your positive reviews and ratings help other church leaders more easily find our podcasts so they too can benefit from these interviews. Again, we thank you in advance. And if you have any comments, any questions, suggestions, or ideas for guests, I would love to hear from you. You can send me an email to podcast at churchleaders.com, or you can connect with me on Twitter. Finally, you can find this podcast as well as other great faith-based podcasts on the FaithPlay app. It's available for both Apple and Android. And so we encourage you to check that out as well. So until next time, this is Jason Day, encouraging you to love well and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website, churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.